Blooming Lotus Yoga presents Drops of Nectar with Ramananda Mayi. In this podcast, we share the profound wisdom of yoga, tantra, and Vedanta so that you may deepen your understanding of the Dharma and live a more fulfilling, awakened, and compassionate life. Namaste. How's everyone tonight? <coughs> Good. <laughs> Hanging in there. Meditation, hard work uh, on the fourth day. So much hard work just sitting here doing nothing. <laughs> exhausted, I'm exhausted. <laughs> Such a funny thing though. From the outside you look all so peaceful, no? You're just like statues, statues of the Buddha, you know, the steers. You look so peaceful. Somebody's looking at you, some other person's looking at you. You look like you're just this embodiment of peace. But you look at yourself and you see what's going on inside and this battle, this war. It's raging within you and you feel much less than what you appear to be on the outside. And this is the work of a yogi, this is the work of the meditator. All of this processing, all of these ups and downs and highs and lows that we experience in our meditation, just they're just the journey. They're our karma, they are our life. And learning how to manage these states is really the, the spiritual work. It's the evolution, it's the growth of the of the human condition. So meditation gives us some very, very powerful tools in order to learn how to manage all of this change. Because that's all that's going on, just change. Nothing is ever continual. No matter how peaceful you are in one session, how deep you feel like you've gone, and how much progress you feel like you made, and how on the verge of samadhi you feel like you are. <laughs> you know, give it a day or two, and then you're just like, whoa. <laughs> Things on the floor, what the, you know, anger arises, upsetness, frustration, I mean, so, you know, it's ridiculous, you know, it's such a, it's such a roller coaster ride of life, but day in, day out, we have these really high ideals and these practices we learn, and we apply them to the best of our ability, and somehow it seems to be helping, so at least that's what people tell us from the outside, you're kinder, you're nicer, you're more patient, you're more forgiving, more compassionate than you used to be, and you're like, okay, good, <laughs> it's working. <laughs> Somehow it's working. Yeah. All of this purification is a very, very intense, intense work. You're at a stage, you know, four, I think we're four days into it, I lost counts, and I think yesterday. I think we're on the fourth day. What's happening here is you're, you're kind of being pushed to your limit through meditation, you're kind of every day, you know, you're sitting and maybe first 20 minutes, maybe first 30 minutes, it's all right. And you can just manage just another session. Then like 40 minutes, 45 minutes, all over. Like, what is going on? Why am I here? <laughs> the agony, the pain, the disappointment. Oh, where am I going? Am I doing it right? This, that, or the other it just sets in. And you, you, you enter into this, this realm where you've kind of taken yourself through your threshold of comfortability of what is known to you and what is comfortable to you, and now you're kind of moving into this realm of the unknown and the uncomfortable and kind of broken through your, your, your tolerance level for what is familiar and what is comfortable. And this 
breaking through and then being to sustain that level of intensity even when it's not as comfortable as the first 20 or 30 minutes. This is not as tapas, burning, fire, inner light. This is when, if you're able to maintain your intensity level and keep going through the process, no matter what arises, whether it's easy or difficult, this is really the, the work of a yogi. This is very, very deeply purifying because as long as we're just only comfortable in meditation, we're still only at the surface layers of the, of the subconscious mind. And the things that are getting purified aren't really that strong and that intense. It's only when we kind of enter into that unknown, uncomfortable area where the pain sets in, or the emotions start arising, or the thoughts are out of control and you're disorientated, and, and whatever may be happening to you, that if you just continue to work, detachment, awareness, detachment, awareness, constantly cultivating, and you're penetrating into the deeper recesses of the subconscious, and the things that are being purified are much more deep-rooted than purities that are there, so much deeper. And this is really the work. This is the work of deep meditation. And the good news is we don't have to do this, like, all the time. You know, you come to Bali maybe once a year, and you have to sit like this for, like, six days, and you think it's the most terrible thing ever. <laughs> but you still do it because it sounds good and whatnot. But it just, it's not going to last forever. You just hear another two days, two and a half days of this deep kind of work and then you'll be out on the other side and when you go back home all your friends will all you there's this light around you and you're so peaceful to just be here you know the people they, they 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 see something different they experience something different just by being in your presence because you've reached another dimension of the human experience that is for those that are open and receptive very attractive and believe it or not this is how you teach yoga you can sit here, teach some asanas, instruct people how to move the body, etc., etc. Even give talks about yoga and things like this, but that's not the real yoga, and that's not the real teaching of yoga. Real yoga teachers teach through the power of their tapas and their sadhana by this deep, deep inner work. This beautiful light surrounds you. And this light for people that are open, they don't know, it's not necessarily conscious to them, but somehow the subconscious mind is aware or awakened to some other higher possibility of experience that they see in another. And then they themselves yearn for it, they long for it, knowingly or unknowingly. Initially becomes unknowingly, but then it becomes knowingly. Yeah, and this is really how yoga is spread and how yoga is taught, and how yoga has been able to sustain itself for all these thousands of years. Yeah, it just, it's a miraculous kind of process that happens. Now yesterday we were talking a little bit about Isamkya philosophy, and we learned a little bit about how we've gotten ourselves into this mess, and some theoretical points about how, how potentially we can get ourselves out of this mess. And what I'd like to do today isn't so much philosophical, but more practical. And even though the Samkhya philosophy shows us and explains to us intellectually the way out, then we need to figure out exactly how to work out our own salvation. You know, how to, how to free ourselves, how to set ourselves free. You know? And I'm often reminded of the beautiful words of Bob Marley in, in the Redemption song. None but ourselves. Uh, we... Uh, How's it go? Emancipate yourself from mental slavery. None but ourselves can free our minds. And this is really the work 
of the yogi, of the meditator, who are feeling all this turmoil inside them. Nobody can do the work for you. Nobody can save you. Nobody can can help you realize the ultimate truth. There are people that are amazing beings that can inspire us, that just by being in their presence can elevate us, and they can teach us the way, they can show us the path, but we ourselves must walk the path. We must take what we hear, what we listen, what we read, what, what we've been taught about how to practice meditation, and apply it to ourselves with great intensity. In the yoga tradition, in the gradual methodology of yoga, this dualistic paradigm whereby we feel ourselves to be bound and need to do something in order to work out our own salvation, to emancipate our minds, um, we have a number of different frameworks and different techniques that we use. For us as Sri Vidya practitioners, we have three basic foundation of our practice. The first found, and the, the three foundations are based on the eightfold model of Ashtanga Yoga. The first training that we need to uh, invite into our lives and perpetually maintain are, is the training in noble conduct. This is aligning our day-to-day -day lifestyle with the highest ideals of perfection that we can muster up on any given day. We're given in Patanjali's yoga system, in Tirumalar's yoga system, Augustus' yoga system, anybody that uses the Eightfold Path as the base of their teachings, a set of moral ethical principles that we must maintain. Some yogis, and in some traditions, these yamas and niyamas aren't thought of as like precepts. They're actually like vows that people will take. And whenever they break their, their moral training, their noble training in ethics and morals, then there's some repercussions and they feel like they need to, to do some things in order to reestablish their vows. This is very true for you know, the Buddhist system, which uses the same set of yamas as we do with one small modification. In the yoga tradition, we're taught that we need to constantly live with ahimsa, non-violence. This is primarily practiced through living a, a noble life and in a very practical way by refraining from eating the flesh of other animals and perpetuating the cycle of sorrow and suffering that occurs through a non-vegetarian diet. That's one of the cornerstones of the external application of non-violence. Non-violence also needs to occur through words and our speech and our communication patterns with others so that we never speak uh, ill of another, and we never gossip, we never slander, we never really engage in any sort of divisive or harsh speech. This leads to the second part of the yams, which is known as satya, uh, speaking the truth and, and refraining from telling that which is not true. We also have the moral precept of asteya, not stealing, not taking what does not belong to us. Uh, the pre precept, if we're a householder, to um, practice brahmacharya, which is containing our sexual energy within the context of one monogamous relationship and in times of deep retreat like now to refrain from expressing that energy temporarily while you engage in deep meditation and then there's the last one which is non-possessiveness whereby you aren't constantly trying to to grasp and cling to things that you do not currently own so that you don't feel like you're you're, you're needing something more for your satisfaction 
this kind of non-possessiveness, living a simple life and not accumulating so many material goods into your life and, and taking more life of simplicity as the, as the more noble aim of human life rather than what we're taught in Western society, which is accumulation and consumption and more and more possessions, bigger houses, more cars, more and more and more of everything. We prefer a simpler life and we found that that is more conductive to peace and happiness and harmony. In the Buddhist tradition, they do the exact same. However, they do, they replace out non-possessiveness because it kind of is a little bit similar to other things. And they also talk about uh, abstaining from intoxicants. Yeah, so, so not taking in recreational drugs and not taking in uh, alcohol, not taking in tobacco and any sort of intoxicant into the body. Now, for us as yogis, we don't have that precept, but it kind of goes with the territory, as it were. So, the, for the Buddhists, they consider these, the, they call it the Panchashila. Panchashila, the, the, that's actually been adopted into the Balinese way of life. Whenever you go to a Balinese temple, there's this big, giant, you know, plaque outside the temple wall. It's called Panchashila, which describes the ethical, moral code of conduct for people that are to enter the temple and that are following the temple, you know, lifestyle and things like this. They call it the Panchashila. It's actually the Yamas, but they've been adapted with a little bit of flavor from, from the Buddha's teachings. Once we have that strong foundation in noble conduct from the Yamas, then we need to begin to practice all sorts of inner self-disciplines. They're very, very personal. The intensity you wish, your definition of them is a little bit flexible, but the basic ones are maintaining purity. This is saucha, purity of body, making sure you're clean and you bathe all the time, and purity of mind by having a dedicated daily meditation practice that purifies the subconscious mind and removes many of the grosser, um, negative mental emotional states from having the chance to stick to you and then express and cause harm to others. And we then also have the, the practice of santosha, maintaining ourselves in a state of contentment and doing all that we can on a mental emotional level, not to be so reactive and to be more uh, focused on maintaining inner equilibrium so that we're satisfied with what is freely given to us rather than constantly pursuing our likes and our dislikes, just being content with what arises, not yearning, not grasping, not chasing after pleasure or trying to avoid pain, and try to find more of that middle path that allows you to feel a greater sense of fulfillment and contentment without the compulsion to seek and to yearn for things that you do not currently possess. Um, we also have Sorry, a little bit of a brain freeze right now. So many principles flowing through that. Um, we also have tapas. And uh, what we were just discussing earlier by having this really intense level of practice whereby you take yourself through to your, your, your breaking point, that place where you just kind of feel like I could collapse and I can just kind of just not go so intensely on my journey or I can take myself to my threshold and see what arises and how much deeper I can purify when I'm a little bit less than fully comfortable in all the experiences that I'm having. Saucha Santosha. I just said one, I just forgot it. Tapas. And there's two more. There's so I have a zillion things that I, that I keep in here and I I don't know how to order them all at the same time some days. 
Meditation also makes it a little bit more formless in there, so it's hard to keep it all, all straight without the notes and things. But those are the basics. Those are the basics. By developing this kind of lifestyle, this yogic lifestyle, that you're allowed to practice here now. The fourth one is Ishwara Pranidhana, and the surrender to the Supreme. If you have a devotional nature, it becomes helpful to invite prayer into your life and to take an attitude of um, yearning to know your maker or connect with your creator in some way or another and develop this attitude of self-surrender to whatever it is that you think the divine to be, whether it's the universe or divine mother or a creator father or whatever that is, to practice humility and surrender in the face of that. And the fifth one is swadhyaya, uh, self-reflection, spending time every day whereby you are um, um, you just take some time out and reflect on spiritual themes like we did on the second day when we're trying to recall um, um, you know, the preciousness of human life. Some people practice Swadhyayi through journaling at the end of the day. We practice Swadhyayi when we're reading a sacred text or even uh, New Age texts on spiritual life and things like this. Those things that help us reflect on the deeper dimensions of life so we're not always just on the material uh, level. Once we kind of bring all of these into our daily life, our life is no longer normal. You're not living like a normal person's life. <laughs> you're, you're something else. You're something exceptional. You've elevated your lifestyle, your whole persona, your whole personality is transformed, and you're no longer what we consider a samsari, somebody that just like constantly living through cyclical existence, completely ignorant of the ultimate aim of human life, or even a spiritual seeker that like knows the theory but hasn't learned how to really bring it into, into their way of life, you, you become what's known as a sadhaka, like somebody that's moving towards living a divine life, somebody that is taking spiritual practices very, very seriously and is integrating them on the level of the external life so that next stages of the training are focused largely on mastery over the mind and developing deeper levels of mental mastery. And the, the mind is... The mind is immense. It is absolutely immense. The conscious levels of the mind are, are very small compared to the unconscious and subconscious layers of mind. And learning how to purify the mind is really the work of a yogi. Within the, the, the Sri Vidya model that we have, as well as other Raja Yoga systems, the general training is to first learn how to tame the body and use the body as a means to gain access to the parasympathetic and the sympathetic nervous system, some people call it autonomic nervous system, by practicing intense levels of asana and by beginning to purify the internal organs of the body, purifying the blood, purifying digestive system, the brain is enhanced. The brain begins to work more efficiently. Uh, in the modern age, I believe only in the last few years, neuroscientists have developed and discovered there's something called neurogenesis. I don't know if any of you have heard of this, we've read about it. Basically, when I was a young kid, when I went to biology class and they taught us about the brain, they told us that 
when you have X amount of neurons inside your brain, and after they die, which they gradually do to old age, they cannot replenish. They just die, and basically they dumber as you get older. You lose your memory, you forget things, your brain goes into the state. But now, just in the last few years, I don't think it's been more than three, maybe four years, neuroscientists have discovered that neurons can regenerate. And this is called neurogenesis. And this is very fascinating for those of you that like, you know, combining science and yoga. So there's always something you can do a little bit of research in and explain to people that yoga helps them with their brain functioning and it does induce this process of neurogenesis. It does so much more than that. It balances the hormones inside the brain. Asana does that. It makes the pineal pituitary and the whole endocrine system works with such immense efficiency in the body of a yogi compared to somebody that is just doing normal layers of exercise, like people that run or go to the gym. Some benefit is there, but because they're not practicing the breathing exercise and the breath isn't regulated, and the, the body isn't responding with the same level of efficiency that it does in the body of a, of a yogi that's practicing asana. Asana is a, such a much more refined and evolved method of fitness and exercise and bodily maintenance because it's really working directly on the endocrine system which conditions our neurochemicals and our hormones which have a lot to do with our emotions and our moods and our psychological tendencies and then it's also working directly on the brain and the neurons and the nervous system and not everything is doing that as directly running, a little bit swimming, a little bit other forms of exercise, a little bit, but not necessarily, particularly if you're doing like exercise that are really competitive and things of this nature, they're not really working in the brain in the exact same way to help the, the, the organism evolve to its highest potential. Sometimes these very excessive competitive exercises that people do, like sports and athletes and things like this, is actually just like you know, diminishing their spiritual evolution because it gets so aggressive because of it. And because the entire endocrine system isn't being activated, there's a heavy emphasis on the adrenal glands and certain cortexes inside the brain that are spewing out a lot of testosterone and other chemicals that aren't necessarily uh, helping us with our mental, emotional state. They just tend to create more aggression more violence and more of that like you know more animalistic tendency inside of us when somebody has that firm base of asana in place then we learn the breathing techniques known as pranayama we then will learn some uh, um, uh, sense withdrawal techniques to begin to probe into the subconscious mind and then we learn these things we call meditation techniques they're actually not really meditation techniques they're actually more like concentration exercises that help the mind maintain stability and focus upon a singular object one pure object that can use as a gateway into the meditative experience and this is known as dharana so up to this stage, most of our training is in mastering our mind. And as we're going this entire training in noble conduct and mastery of our mind, on a philosophical level, we're actually ascending through all the different realms of the Samta philosophy. Because for the most part, all of this is encouraging the buddhi or the intellect, the higher aspects of the human mind to activate 
right? The asana is triggering certain cortexes in the brain, certain neurochemicals that increase the intellect, that make you more lucid, make you more sharp, make you more vivid and clear and lucid, makes you more peaceful, more calm, more patient. All of these things are the higher virtues of the human condition. And this is how the Samkhya philosophy and the yoga practices correlate. Basically, all we're doing is finding ways of mastering the senses, and what are called the tanmatras, mastering the karmendriyas, which is the body, and all the organs and limbs of the body, by gaining control over the central nervous system. We're gaining mastery over the sense organs themselves, so that we're not so just constantly yearning and seeking out sensory experiences. Just because we see something beautiful, or something pleasurable, or pleasant, doesn't mean we yearn for it, cling to it. We could by all means enjoy it, but we do so with a certain kind of reservation, knowing all the while that that thing is temporary. It will not give lasting satisfaction, but while it endures, I will enjoy it, but I will enjoy it knowing that it will not last. So I will not be so fixated or so attached, so clingy and so graspy to the idea that that thing will give me lasting happiness and lasting satisfaction because we've activated what's called the buddhi or the intellect which is beginning to sense or intuit that there's something else inside that is the real source of happiness the real source of satisfaction an ever-present experience an ever-present way of perception a way of being that is the source of happiness an eternal source, a permanent source of happiness that is not dependent upon the objects of the world, the people, the places, the conditions, the events, the situations that one faces. And if one can tap into that and come into contact with the source of happiness, whatever name one may call it, and continually remember mindfulness, memory, remembrance, of the one or the source or of happiness or bliss or Brahman or of Shiva or what one calls it, that itself will sustain the rest of the journey and then the buddhi, the intellect, will be able to sustain its remembrance or its awareness of that which it is yearning for, which is freedom, which is happiness, which is an enduring state of satisfaction, and thereby realize it as a, as a living, breathing experience called life rather than being stuck always in like the, 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 the external paradigm where one is thinking happiness arises from the objects of the world. Now, in order to establish oneself permanently in that experience and to have a real deep connection to it, rather than just kind of like a fleeting kind of vague experience, we need to develop what is known as wisdom. And the third foundation of Sri Vidya is training in wisdom. This occurs in a gradual model by the practice of dhyana, just the meditative absorptions, and the practice of samadhi, which is a non-practice. It's not a practice, it's just simply an experience that occurs to one when one is ready. And th these these eight limbs of yoga correspond to these three foundations. We've talked about this in depth before, possibly. So what I'd like to do today is we've often talked about the first five um, stages of yoga, from yama to pratyahara, 
We're going to now dive deep today into dharana and to really use this as an opportunity to enrich your existing practice as you sit every day for, you know, five, six, seven, eight hours. And you're practicing mostly the time, you're actually training. Most of your training is being done on the level of mastery over the mind and in the higher limbs of yoga whereby you're struggling to, to concentrate. So as you're sitting, most of your senses are introverted because of the silence. Silence is like the best method of pratyahara, of sense withdrawal. You just start being silent. Try as you may, the senses will, will naturally come inside. And then the work is to find a way of stabilizing the mind upon an object of meditation. And I'll begin to dive into that right now. And then we'll even talk about what happens later. So we've just gone through this. I'm not going to go through it again, but these are... Actually, let's go through it real quick. We've just gone through them, but based on one's um, spiritual lineage, whatever the techniques that are added at each of the eight levels of the Shtanga Yoga model, the eight-limbed yoga model, is particular to the teacher, to the teachings, to the what we call sampradaya or the lineage of meditation um, that one is participating in. As a general trend, almost all school of Raja yogis are going to take the same yamas and niyamas. It's very universal, whether you're at the Shivananda Yoga ashrams or you're at um, any ashram in India that's practicing Raja Yoga or Kriya Yoga ashram or something like this of Yogananda, everyone agrees yamas and niyamas are pretty universal. In terms of which asanas they decide to practice, that's really up to the individual for the most part. You can learn whatever asanas you like. You can learn um, headstands and shoulder stands and twists and standing postures and a whole wide array of seated po- of, of, of different postures. Ultimately, you'll want to develop the understanding that um, all of these different asanas are designed so we can sit in one asana for long periods of time. As a general rule, we've developed off of some old models of the yogis, the idea that there's the seven-point Padma posture. It's very simple. It's written in your meditation booklet. Ideally, the legs should be crossed. Any seated, comfortable posture with the legs crossed is the first base. You can practice sitting in a chair, but it's different. It's not The energetic component isn't so strong. We can let people sit on chairs if their body refuses to be able to to sit on the ground. But really a comfortable seated position is really important because the the contact of Muladhara chakra with the earth directly is very, very important. There's a certain kind of pressure that occurs there that facilitates the awakening of Kundalini. The second part of the the seven-point Padma posture is um, an erect spine, making sure that the spine is very very straight this opens the second chakra in such a way that its subtle energy known as vyana vayu uh, is allowed to distribute evenly through the entire central nervous system and the entire subtle body Um, once we have a comfortable spine and we're not slouching forward or to the side then we learn how to control the samana vayu the energy of the third chakra by bringing our hands in some mudra usually chin mudra jnana mudra um, dhyana mudra, any others are also welcome if you learn something else that you enjoy. By all means, you're welcome to practice that. 
once we have our, our mudra set, then it, the heart chakra and its value, known as prana value, is encouraged to, to stay open by, lift, by bringing the, the shoulders back and down so that the, 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 the shoulders aren't caging in the, the lungs of so the respiration being full and complete. Once we have a nice open and broad chest, then we work with the energy of the throat chakra, udana value, by, by sealing it and preventing it from leaking out, but just gently bringing the chin in towards the chest, making the back of the neck long. If our neck is like this, or like this, or like this, it may look very nice, but the energies aren't flowing properly. We need like full, full yogi. Yeah. <laughs> If you're, if you're like this, you're daydreaming, daydreaming, daydreaming. Different, different, different directions. Um, when, when the spine is imperfectly aligned, Shashunya Nadi isn't properly functioning, and the values, the subtle energies, are moving in the channels in different ways, and they have predictable results regarding what kind of thought forms and what kind of emotions people are, are perceiving. These have been documented in old yoga manuals. I don't remember them off my top of my head, but maybe one day. I'll share those with you. But basically all we need to know is we need to keep that neck nice and straight and the chin gently tucked in. You then keep the, and you, you help bring the energy of the lower chakras, the lower body, and help it circulate through the brain and through the higher centers by bringing the tip of the tongue to touch the upper palate of the mouth. Bring your tip of the tongue to touch the upper palate of the mouth. It creates a little connection between a certain nerve plexus or a nerve point or or, or something. <laughs> I don't really know what it is scientifically or biologically, but there's like a nerve ending, we can say, that is near the back of the upper palate. And if the tongue, which is very, very sensitive, touches that point, it helps the energy lift from the lower center and, and flow better through the central channel. And then by drawing the eyes within, and the, the Sahasrara chakra is encouraged to, to open. Yeah, there'll be certain times in meditation where the eyes will start rolling up and, and feeling like they're lifting. This is just part of what we call Shambhavi Mudra, this kind of weird thing that happens to meditator, whereby when all the energy begins to, to pull itself and be drawn into the seven chakra, the nerves of the body, it takes a little bit of accustoming to it, and there's a physiological reaction that makes the optic nerve flutter, so it'll create like rapid eye movement, and as well, the, the a strange phenomenon whereby by the eyes will want to roll up and back towards the top of the head. For people that don't know about this, it's a little bit weird and a little bit freaky looking to see somebody like that. But it's just kind of part of the process of the energy being lifted up. And this is ultimately where asana is leading us towards. This is why we're doing all these many different asanas, so we can get really firm in one asana. Once we have that asana set, then different Yoga schools are going to teach different types of pranayama. We like Ujjayi and Nadi Shodhana. We're not big on pranayama, just a little bit, 15-20 minutes before meditation practice. There, there's a lot of different exercises other schools do, we're not so interested. For Pratyahara, the level of sense withdrawal, we're usually using a chakra cleansing exercise as a means towards sense withdrawal. If you haven't learned that, know that yoga nidra is largely a sense withdrawal exercise. You can by all means take it beyond that, but for most people that's like the most effective part of yoga nidra because 
the sense withdrawal of seated meditation is much more challenging than for your average beginner. So that's why we like to teach yoga nidra so we can give them a taste of what it's like to just go so deep inside and how rejuvenating and refreshing that can be when you come out. And you can do it much quicker, as it, as it were. Enter sense withdrawal and yoga nidra can take, you know, 10 minutes because the body's so comfortable and there's not so many distractions, the pain in the knees or the back, which extrovert the senses. But yoga nidra, until you, you become very lucid inside of it, has a tendency to, to, to help you lose consciousness rather than maintain higher levels of consciousness. For this, we need to be sitting upright. The Shashuna Nadi needs to be aligned directly over Mother Earth and the crown chakra up towards the sky. When somebody has that base of sense withdrawal, then the next stage is the practice of Dharana. We practice this by watching the gap the natural gap in between the breaths, which is this point of natural retention of breath, we call it kumbhaka. We also can practice the chanting of mantra. We can also practice a self-inquiry by holding the I thought as the object of meditation. And that's really as far as, as you can go in terms of self-effort. Dharana is really the hard work. The hard work of a yogi is really getting to the stage whereby they begin to enjoy practicing meditation and then they spend the majority of their spiritual life at the stage of dharana, trying to break through into the meditative absorptions. And then after some exposure to the meditative absorption, samadhi spontaneously, naturally, organically will happen when we'll have this profound experience of what we call nirvana. Or, or moksha, liberation, whereby um, they experience the complete oneness of life. Um, for us, as yogis, it's important to understand dharana. Right now we're spending so much time every day, six, seven hours every day, in, in concentration. Let's understand how that process manif manifests. There's generally considered to be about five main factors that make up the practice of dharana, and they're progressive. It's kind of like a tiered system where you have to enter these steps or stages of concentration sequentially, one at a time, and you can't shortcut any of them. You have to go through them. The first one is known as, in Sanskrit, known as vitarka. This is directed attention. This is where most of us are most of the time when we say that we're practicing meditation. We're sitting here and we're basically just trying to gain control of our attention span. We're just trying to take that which we call our awareness or our attention and direct it upon something. You're told focus on the gap in the breath. You're told chant a mantra. You're told, you know, uh, practice self-inquiry. And it sounds nice and you're trying, but you need to use a lot of energy to, to focus on the breath or to focus on the mantra or to focus on the self-inquiry and focus on the I thought. And all of this effort of trying to focus is what is known as the tarka, trying to direct awareness upon a singular object. And it's very difficult initially. Try as you may and we tell you, you know, watch the breath, try not to lose any single breath, things of this nature, you know, you're inhale. Exhale, inhale, exhale, gone. If most people can, can last for like two breaths or three breaths without being distracted and being lost in something else, it's a minor miracle. Some people can't even go beyond one exhale and one inhale. 
Yeah. But know that this is just the beginning stages. The initial application of concentration is the hardest part. Vitarka is really the hardest work of all because this is where you're trying to gain mastery over your mind with great intensity because the mind wants to disperse. Its nature is not to be still. Its nature is to be constantly in a state of activity, constantly in a state of motion and in, in, in experiencing what we call karma, action, never-ending um, movement and restlessness and agitation inside the mind is there to try to take it and focus that monkey mind upon one object for long periods of time takes heroic effort. Now the good news is, is that even though it can seem at times daunting or impossible to do this for like long periods of time, you just need to get yourself to a place whereby you can maintain awareness upon one object initially for about 10 seconds. You can just hold the attention on the breath, or hold the mantra, or hold the self-inquiry for about 10 seconds, you're good. If all you're doing here is you're sitting for one hour meditation, and maybe within this one hour session you can hold awareness on the object of meditation for like about 10 seconds, maybe four or five different times, this is progress. It may not sound like much, but it's actual progress. Because the ability to move from 10 seconds to 30 seconds much easier than it was to get from like one or two seconds to ten seconds. Everything gets progressively easier. By the time you're holding your awareness on the breath, undistracted for about 30 seconds, this is big. If in, in a one-hour session you can maintain awareness of your breath for about 30 seconds, even one time, or maybe two, maybe even three times in that session, very good progress. The ability the next day or the day after to go from like 30 seconds to 45 or even a minute of uninterrupted concentration is progressively easier than that massive initial effort of just getting the mind to be steady for 10 seconds. So, so know that the work gets easier over time. The entire work at the level of the target is bringing attention back wherever it's going here whatever it takes, however long you've been lost, you just know that the work is just to become detached from whatever the story, whatever the experiences were, and to redirect awareness back to the object of meditation. No matter if what you felt was pleasant or unpleasant, positive or negative in the past and future, regardless, your work is to totally disregard whatever the stimulus was, whatever the distraction was, and all of it's a distraction, absolutely all of it. No matter if it's pleasant or unpleasant, it's blissful, it's painful, whatever it is, know that it's all a distraction. Just constantly come back to the object of meditation and make your mind one-pointed. This is known as directing awareness, the tarpa. Once you've done this for about 30 seconds, and you can get yourself there, the next stage, which is known as vichara, begins to happen. This is known as sustained attention. Vichara means inquiry or investigation. We sometimes use vichara in many ways. We sometimes talk about atma vichara, inquiry into the self. This is a different vichara. Based on the nature of your meditation object, you will be performing a type of inquiry, investigation, a deep looking into the object of concentration. So if the object of concentration is the breath, after about 20-30 seconds, the mind kind of becomes accustomed to it and on some weird level begins to kind of enjoy it and wants to know more about what this is like. 
and then begins to probe deeper and begins to notice more subtle things that I never picked up before about the breath. You'll begin to analyze or reflect deeply upon the object. If it's the breath, you'll begin to notice the breath is a little bit warmer when it's coming in, a little, a little bit cooler when it's coming in, a little bit warmer when it's coming out. If it's the breath, you'll notice a little bit on the right side, a little bit on the left side. You'll notice where the touch of the breath is, where you feel the swirling of the oxygen in it and the out-breath touching the inner portion of the nostrils. You'll begin to notice all sorts of cell sensations inside the nostrils, maybe in other parts of the body. You begin to become fascinated, as it were, upon the object. If it's mantra, you'll begin to notice all sorts of things about the mantra. You'll begin to notice that the mantra has this kind of vibration associated with it, and then you want to know more about the vibration. When you begin to use the, the I thought as the source, you begin to, to investigate and, and do more what we call atmavichara, looking really what is this I, with a greater intensity at this level. You begin to notice some nuances of the practice. And this is known as sustained attention. This requires less work than the initial application. Effort is definitely there because it's very easy to get to this level and kind of just come back out and be lost in thought again and then need to direct the mind again until it's kind of steady for some time and then begin to probe deeper into the meditation object. Now, if you can maintain uninterrupted investigation of the chara, in the object of meditation for some prolonged periods. It takes time at this stage. It may take, because what happens is you're typically fluctuating in between the first two stages a lot of times. Sometimes you'll be like hyper-concentrated and be like really into your meditation object. And other times you'll, you'll struggle just to keep that attention there again. You'll go really deep into the vichara and then you'll kind of pull out. And this process can last 20 minutes, 30 minutes, 45 minutes, the entire session most times for most people. But if you can maintain this kind of intense interest, vichara, on the object for long periods of time, you eventually enter the stage known as pritti. This is the third factor of concentration. This is the sense of joyous lightness. All of a sudden, something begins to occur within, within the mind stream. All of a sudden, meditation stops being a chore. It stops being something you like or needing to put so much effort into. And all of a sudden, the body, for no real reason, kind of perks up naturally without a lot of effort your body will enter into a very comfortable asana and all of a sudden you begin to become a little bit more aware of these pleasurable or pleasant sensations that occur inside you begin to feel vibration typically inside it's different for different people the exact quality or the texture that's there but on some level you begin to become aware of your energy body the energetic component your light body your sukshma sharira begins to, to reveal itself to it, and it's full of many, many very pleasant and enjoyable sensation. Uh, at this stage, all of a sudden, all the discomfort of the body, the pain in the knee, the pain in the back, and the chest, and the head, or the shoulder, wherever you feel it, it's still there, but it's somehow just receded to the background. And there's now this thin layer of pleasurable, pleasant types of sensations that are just kind of part of the experience of meditation. And this feels very lovely. By all means, when you experience this, enjoy it. 
it's a wonderful stage to have become, to, to, to allow to have happened to you. But don't be so attached, thinking that that's the end all. Know that there's a lot more that's going on through the process, but at this stage, we can really allow ourselves to begin to enjoy meditation. Not with attachment, but just like, okay, all right, yeah. <laughs> you know, here I am, like five years later, ten years later, <laughs> I've been sitting like this for so long, in agony, and there's like, all right, you know, a little bit of happiness, a little bit of joy, so you can, you can, you can let yourself really sink into it. It happens. It takes four, five, six days for most people of like deep meditation. You know, six days of agony. You know, and eventually, you know, one minute, two minutes, five minutes, ten minutes of just wow. This is what they're talking about. Yeah. This, this is the stage of pretty very, very lovely. We like this. We want to enjoy this, and we want to begin to recognize it. And we want to begin to notice that it's always been here. And it, it's all, it, it didn't arise actually out of thin air. It's actually always here. But I just haven't been aware that it's been here. Once you become familiar through repeated exposure, because you'll kind of enter into the state, and the pretty state, as nice as it is, is still some excitement. Because all of a sudden you're like, I'm feeling something. <laughs> Something ha- something's happening, right? There's some joy that's there, but there's a little bit of a thrill involved in the experience. And that thrill has a bit of a danger of attachment developing, so be careful with that. But that's natural, we can't avoid that. We all get attached to it, and then we need to look beyond it. But that's just part of it. But this kind of thrill that's there distracts you. Does you, you feel good all of a sudden, you kind of feel good about yourself, feel like you accomplished something, you got somewhere, you know, <laughs> whatever it is for you. And that little bit of distraction, that little bit of, of thrill that's there is a certain kind of agitation in the mind that has broken your concentration, and then all of a sudden you kind of are pulled out just a little bit, and then you're aware of your meditation object, but the, the joy has receded to a place where it's no longer there. So again, you keep doing the hard work of investigation, vichara, directed, sustained, all of this stuff, until again you reach the stage of pritti, of joy. Once you become accustomed to it, most long-term meditators, people have been meditating for decades, this is their fundamental experience in meditation. You sit there, you have some pain, but after about 30-40 minutes, you know, they're like inside, and you know, this nice joyous feeling is there, and they can sit for 20 minutes, you know, like an hour, literally, just there, and smile. <laughs> <laughs> what can you do, no? <laughs> That's her thing, right? So for her, it's... it's <laughs> She can enter this stage like, you know, like, you know, it doesn't take very long, 20 minutes maybe. And she loses most body awareness. Some pain is there for her. When she comes out, she's aware, oh, okay, some pain is there. But most of the time, it's very joyful. And it's very light. And it's a very nice experience. Once you become very used to it and aware of it, you can begin to, to kick it in and become aware of that layer of the human experience at will. And this isn't just when you're sitting, because once you get used to it, it just kind of starts happening to you without you making an effort through meditation. But in day-to-day circumstances, when you're walking, when you're talking, when you're experiencing things, you can just kick it in. And you can just remember that that level of experience exists. And you can just like start feeling really good. 
for no reason. <laughs> People think you're a little bit like this, but you really found the secret. You know, you've, you've discovered a rare secret that almost no human being knows. Yeah, and this is just the, the power of meditation. Once you discover this just initial level of bliss, because there's a lot more going on back and behind of this, then you can begin to do what we call utilizing bliss as the path. And you can take bliss as the path. This is just something you can do. Once you're familiar with the state, you don't need to generate it. You just need to, or create it. It's always here. You just need to recall it or remember it. And whenever you feel like less than complete or your mind's distracted or something, you just kind of remember it and use that as a gateway towards higher realization. And it's a very, very wonderful thing to be able to do in terms of, of meditative uh, experience. Once we get to the stage of pretty, it doesn't stop there. This is just the baby joy, baby lightness of being that we experience in meditation. And after some time, this joyous excitement, because there's a thrill, there's energy there, the energy body is kind of tingling, it's vibrating in a very nice and pleasant way. Eventually it softens, because that thrill has a little bit of agitation associated with it. And the next thing is known as sukha or deep ease, just, just a deep relaxation, a deep kind of ease, a lightness, a, just a, a, an easiness where there isn't so much effort to maintain this thrill because you see that even though this thrill of joy is very nice and it's very exciting, its tendency is to want to extrovert you and to pull you back down to the, the levels below it. Only once you become accustomed to this joy can you enter into the next stage. And this next stage just allows you to just to have that joy, but not have that be the main focus. Where you are more calm, more cool, more collected, and more in a state of, of inner balance where you're not so excited. You know, when you're young, you, th you live off of the thrill of excitement. As you get older, you'll notice that calmness is a much more desirable experience than this to like be constantly thrill-seeking, which is what you do when you're in your 20s and maybe even your 30s. This calmness is sukha. Once you've allowed yourself just to stay in this deep inner ease, this still takes effort. You need to maintain deep awareness of the meditation object and all of these Things are dependent upon intense one-pointed focus. The second, any level of distraction, any discursive thought, any discursive emotion that captivates you for more than just a few split seconds, you'll get pulled down into the levels below it. Thoughts will continue to rise, emotions will continue to rise, but by now your power of detachment, the ability to not get distracted by them, but to allow them to rise, not be fascinated by them, and immediately relinquish them, is getting very strong. Things will still come, lots of impressions, lots of things may still arise. Their velocity will decrease compared to like the normal lower states. You're still getting impressions and memories and desires arising and things of this kind, but not with the same intensity that you get in the early beginning stages of meditation. They're coming, but a little bit fewer, a little bit far between, and as soon as they come, you're aware that they are a hindrance to the path into the meditative journey and you just immediately do your best to like oh it still takes a lot of effort but by now the mind is more mature and more detached so as they rise they just just as quickly fade away at this stage 
you're about 80% of your mental energy is just focused, absolutely focused on the meditation objects, and about 20% of the mind's energy is still kind of lingering in some memories, some fantasies, some thoughts, ideas. All the conceptual things are there, but they're, they're really on the periphery of the experience. What happens at the final stage of dharana, we call it ekagrata, the, the collecting of the mind. It, it pulls all of its various faculties together and integrates it into one-pointed experience of the meditation's object. And the second the mind enters into this one-pointedness of a focus of attention, massive amount of mental energy is required to make the mind one-pointed. And for most meditators, this can take an hour and a half of sitting, maybe two hours. Eventually, people learn how to enter the state much quicker, but in the initial time, the first, you know, first attempts into the stage usually take a lot of sitting, an hour and a half, two hours, sometimes maybe even longer for some people. And you can take a little bit of break in between, but the more you can maintain unbroken awareness of the meditation object, the quicker and the easier this process will be. This also includes maintaining awareness of the meditation object outside of formal sitting sessions. So just because you've gone up and you've broken your asana and you're walking around, you, you have to, as a beginner, let the mind loose. You, you'll, you'll drive yourself insane if you just constantly try to focus on, on that meditation object. But as the days unfold, after fourth day, fifth day, sixth day of intense meditation, you'll notice that there's a natural vividness of the mind that sometimes will just occur as you're walking, as you're laying down. And when you notice that, just come back to the meditation object. Eventually, as you mature in your, in your meditative training, you'll begin to become be aware of the meditation object. Even in day-to-day -day life, you'll just be walking and you'll be aware of the breath. You'll be talking to somebody, maybe your mantras reverberating in the background, or you're doing some activities and you're constantly self-aware. We want to cultivate as much continuous focus on our meditation object in non-formal meditative sessions as possible. However, don't drive yourself nuts initially trying to do that because you'll wind yourself up in too tight. There's enough tightness that we do when we sit that, you know, in the one hour, two hour, three hour breaks in between sessions, you need to let the mind relax. You need to just let it just roam as it were, and whatever distractions, whatever thoughts, emotions are arising, whatever processing it's doing, let it do that. But whenever you can come back, even for a few moments, back to the breath or month or inquiry or any other technique, know that that is a really, really good sign of progress because in order to break through into these higher stages of dharana and ultimately into dhyana, we need unbroken, unwavering attention and maintaining continuity of awareness of the meditation object in non-formal periods becomes absolutely essential because there's only so much work you can do in one hour or two hours of sitting. You need to continue just a little bit of that remembrance, even if it's just a few minutes or 30 seconds here, 20 seconds there, and a you know, two or three hour break, that's enough so that when you do come back down to sit, the memory is still fresh of what it is that the mind should be focused upon. And it helps you go through the, uh, the stages of dharana much more quickly. 
Eventually, once you get yourself to this place of collection of mind, where the mind has become one-pointed, a very unique experience happens. Depending on what your meditation object is, it's very common for most meditators to then perceive some sort of inner light that will manifest inside the mind's eye. You'll be sitting in meditation and all of a sudden, unbeknownst to you, you'll start seeing some colored lights inside inside your inner gaze. It's often of a, of a whitish, golden, yellowish color. Um, it's like a divine light. I, I don't know what else to call it. It simply just arises. It, it doesn't need to arise in the third eye. It can rise in the heart. It can rise any place where that meditation object is being focused upon. And when you're going through the stages of dharana, this, this, this inner light will begin to come. But it will come and it won't last for more than about 30 seconds, a minute, maybe two minutes, and then it will dissolve. It, we see many different inner lights as we practice meditation. Um, in the initial stages of moving through the stages of dharana, this light will kind of come in. It'll be kind of hazy, fuzzy, not well defined. As your concentration deepens and your awareness of the meditation object deepens, as a byproduct, this inner light will get stronger and brighter and more well defined. Initially, people think that they see this light and they do begin to see the first semblance of it, but the actual manifestation of the light that will trigger the transition from dharana into the first meditative absorption is very distinct. The, that light becomes very circular, its edges become very well defined, and it's said to be like a pearly white color, like the full moon kind of pearly white color. All of you, I'm sure, by this stage, have probably seen some sort of, of this phenomenon of the inner light as you're meditating and you're wondering what to do with it. Don't do anything. That light arises secondarily of its own accord without you making effort to. The second you focus upon that light, you made your mind go into two. Rather than maintaining a one-pointed awareness, you've fractured your awareness. So that's aware of the meditation object, but also trying to become, oh, what's this thing? What's this inner light? Oh my God, it's God. You're saying God, what's God? Well, look, it's God. No, come back, God. Come back. Because your, your meditation, <laughs> because your, your meditation powers become fractured because you now have two subjects, two objects of meditation, the light and the breath, the light and the mantra, the light and the self, the inquiry. Uh, the light will not sustain itself. And this is why you need to stay only on your meditation object, no matter how attractive that divine light may be, know that it is not the object of meditation, but a very, very good sign of progress, but not something that you need to actively pursue, because the second you do, you create a rupture, a fracture, mind has dissipated its forces. Stay with your meditation object, and the longer you stay with the meditation object, eventually there will come a time where this light will collect, and it will become very, very distinct, be very bright, be very well-defined, like a circular foam moon, pearly white, golden white, yellow light color. And if you just maintain your awareness on the meditation object of its own accord, 
without you needing to do anything further, the light and the meditation object will merge naturally into one another. There's a yoga, a union that happens there. If the object is the breath, eventually this light that you see in your inner light will become the breath, will become one with the breath. It will then propel you into what we call dhyana, or the meditative absorption. The light will then fade away, because it's not the objective, and you'll be left in what we call the first meditative absorption, of which there are eight. The first four are form-based, the second are formless. The first one is like an inner space. Now, dhyana is very unique experience. We call it a meditative absorption because it feels like you're being absorbed into it. It's an effortless experience. The only effort you needed to make was to make the mind one-pointed. At this stage, you can't do anything to meditate or to enter the mental absorptions. They happen to you. It feels like you're being pulled into something or being sucked into this experience. It's like there's a vacuum that you just has absorbed you, as it were. And it's not something that you can forcefully push yourself into. It requires letting go. It's a, a type of yielding and surrender rather than a forceful break through into. You can't do anything to enter the meditative absorptions. The characteristic of this first one is an inner spaciousness. Up to this point, it feels like awareness and concentration is drilled down like with laser-like focus into an infinitesimally small point. Something so... it's like looking through a keyhole. You've gone your eye, and here you're looking through this keyhole, but everything is so scrunched, everything is so tight. But all of a sudden, when, when this divine light comes, it's like a doorkeeper. It will help propel you into the meditation absorption. It's like the key that opens the door, and then all of a sudden the door is open, and you're aware of this vast, vast space, this vast open room that you've entered. You still feel like you're a center of consciousness, so consciousness feels like it is still centered within the framework of the body. Therefore, it's a form-based absorption. You still feel to have your form, but you're aware of a much wider scope of space that surrounds you. You no longer feel like you, as you define yourself, are confined to your skin. Our awareness right now is trapped in the body. This is a body-less experience. Awareness has transcended the confines of the physical frame and has even moved, as it were, beyond even the astral body and has experienced a vast inner space, the space of consciousness. They sometimes call it chitta the space of consciousness. Within this meditative absorptions, the same qualities that we found within the, the five stages of dharana, or concentration, need to be maintained. Still some effort must be there, but this effort is, is not as strong as before because you've surrendered and you've yielded. These factors are still there. You're still aware of these factors, but the ego structure in its will and its desire and its force to maintain them has shifted. It's more of an awareness of these factors rather than a cultivation of these factors through egoic effort. So we still have the directed attention, 
mind is still, so because we have direct attention, there's still thoughts that come. Even within this, there can be some very, very sparse thoughts that come once in a while. But awareness will collect itself, it will again and again come back and come back to the meditation object. Throughout all of the dharana process, throughout all of the dhyana process, no, there's nothing you need to change. Just stay one-pointed on your meditation object and never, ever, ever be distracted away from it. Sometimes people think there's more advanced techniques or something new or something fresh that you need to do. It's not like that. Anytime those thoughts come in, know that they're just trying to fracture your awareness, your attention to multiple streams. Just stay with the breath, stay with the mantra, stay with the self-inquiry. And through that, you'll be able to enter into the higher stages. The second meditation, meditative absorption is characterized by intense bliss. The bliss or the joy that we talked about, the level of pretty in the stage of like intense focus and concentration is like a baby kind of joy. It's a pleasantness, it's a great feeling, we love it. But the kind of joy that we're talking about at this level is uncomparable. It is like rapture, it's like pure ecstasy. The, the chemicals flowing out of the brain and, and the way that that's making the body feel is intoxicating. It is beyond sexual orgasm, it's beyond ayahuasca, it's beyond DMT, it's beyond any of that stuff. It is of a whole other caliber of experience because there's such a vivid lucidity that is there and you, you, you feel like you have merged with God and the bliss of God is a very real and tangible experience and it is absolutely intoxicating. Uh, the great mystics talk about it in this way. If you read the poetry of Rumi, he talks about how he's drunk on God all the time. And many mystics around the world describe as this intoxication, this love affair that is going on inside. At this level, we have the experience of Amrita, whereby this, 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 this subtle fluid begins to secrete out of the higher... Um, glands of the brain and the serotonin, melatonin, dopamine, they, they begin to form in very, very unique chemical compositions that make the physiological body and the energy body as well feel immense, immense, immense bliss. So this is, this is one aspect of the meditative absorptions. At this stage, we still have the sense of joy, which is intensified massively. There's still the sense of ease and the sense of one-pointedness, but the capacity to direct and sustain awareness has totally disappeared because this is a, like another layer of egolessness. The ego is perpetually just fading away and your will and your effort and your, 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 your volition, your personal desires take a second step here as life begins to take over so you no longer need to, to direct or even try to sustain awareness it's kind of just doing that on its own the primary sensation is intense bliss and intense joy once that stage of dhyana has evolved and one is entered into the second meditative absorption it's very common to fall back down to the first and then come back into normal waking states of consciousness, completely, radically transformed on the inside, because the meditative absorptions are doing something that dharma cannot. They are purifying the unconscious layers of the brain in a way that nothing else can. 
Whereas in the stage of dharana, the mental afflictions, negative thoughts, negative emotions still assail you. No matter how concentrated you are, still some negativities will be there. Love, greed, fear, anxiety, anger, disappointment, all these things. The negative, what we call the kleshas, the negative thoughts, negative emotions, will still continue to haunt you. But when you enter the level of dhyana, even the first dhyana, they cannot touch you. You have temporarily entered a state of higher consciousness where negativity cannot exist. It still exists in seed form, and the meditative absorptions help burn those seeds and help destroy those seeds of negativity, like deep-rooted ignorance, deep-rooted negativities, can only be destroyed through dhyana. You can't really do it through conventional meditation practice that's outside the scope of, of dhyana. We need to be able to get to the stage in order to get rid of the deepest layers of, of conditioning within us. But when you're in dhyana, you're not experiencing those things directly. No negative thoughts, neg negative emotions. Very few thoughts, very few emotions are entering into this field. And the thoughts and the emotions that do arise are incredibly exalted immensely powerful and positive and profound. You're having like genius level uh, insight arise within you. You're gaining access to universal law and natural forces and you're beginning to understand the origin of things. You're beginning to develop all sorts of psychic abilities, the ability to see the past, the ability to see into the future, the ability to predict what will happen in the future, the ability of prophecy. All sorts of inner faculties begin to develop at this stage of a yogi's journey. Um, and they're just part of the journey. They're nothing that we need to cultivate, but they're just things that will begin to happen. Um, the next stage is after yogi can enter into the second stage, and, and in between every single one of these meditative absorptions, the inner light will once more develop. You'll be sitting at the first meditative absorption, very, very peaceful, very, very spacious, and you'll be very, very, it's a wonderful experience. Then, again, just like before in the stage of Dharana, the inner light will begin to come again because it faded away while you're in the experience. And when it comes again, know that it's signaling the entrance into the second meditative absorption. Again, this ball of light, this divine light, will come into the mind's eye, become very well-rounded, very well-formed, very clear and vivid, it will merge once more into that meditation object, whether it's the breath or the sense of I-ness or the or mantra, once more merge into it. Again, your job is not to focus on the light, just stay with the meditation object, and it will pull you into the second. Once you're in the second, the light will fade away, and you'll just be there, merged with the meditation object alone, and then you'll be sitting there for some length of time. These periods can last for five to ten minutes on the short end for more experienced meditators for much, much longer, hours at a time potentially. And then when it's time to transition into the third one, what will happen is that light will once more arise. It will stay for some moments of time, and it will merge with the meditation object, and it will transport you into the third meditative absorption. And this way, the, the light is correlated to the experiences, but it's more like a herald. It's like a, like a symbol, or like a, like, a, like a gatekeeper towards the experiences. It happens at the transition point, but isn't 
the actual experience itself. So be very careful when you try to hold on to it because the second you try to hold on to that light, you're defeating the purpose because it's only a temporary experience that's signaling the awakening of some higher state of, of, of exalted consciousness. Once the, the third meditative dhyana has entered, that sense of intense joy calms. It, it becomes more refined. There's still an immense joy inside, but it's not so excitable and not so energetic. There's not so much vibration that's, that's so, so strong. Everything is much more calmer inside this experience. The sense of joy fades away, and just the sense of ease, sukha, and one-pointed awareness comes. By the time a yogi enters in the fourth meditative absorption, the overall sense is no longer of bliss or ease, but is simply of equanimity, complete evenness, complete equilibrium, whereby one is impenetrable, incapable of reacting to anything, is found the perfect middle way perfect balance between all extremes and is seeing reality from this very, very precise midpoint and is just in a state of complete equal poise. Now beyond this, very, very difficult to talk about and very little literature is here on the subject and very few people that can enter into these meditative absorptions. The interesting to note thing is that we don't actually need to enter into all of these meditative absorptions. A yogi's journey need not take them into the formless realms, and a yogi's journey need not take them in through anything beyond. You don't even even need to enter technically into the first dhyana if you wish to follow the path of self-inquiry using the wisdom-based methodologies. However, for most of us, it's very helpful to at least enter into the first dhyana. By the time you enter in the first meditative absorption, the mind has access to real wisdom, like pure wisdom. And from there, taking that experience, direct experience of wisdom, and applying that to the non-dual wisdom path teachings, is it's different than the intellectual approach. It's something born of direct experience of the pure wisdom of the mind that we access through dhyana, and it becomes a very, very useful base some yogis will not even go into the dhyanas. Some yogis will get only to the level where they can concentrate their mind for about 30 seconds and then shift gears, move away from the Raja Yoga path into the Wisdom path, the Jnana Yoga path. Because Jnana doesn't require dhyana. To enter into the Wisdom path of yoga, the non-dual teachings, you don't need to have experience in the dhyana states, although they are extremely helpful. So some yogis don't even play with the dhyana experiences because dhyana isn't the goal. They're just some kind of maturity that it gives the mind. Um, if you choose to go in this direction, then the first dhyana is sufficient. It's, it's plenty. If you enjoy this whole experience, then you, by all means you can go in the second, you can go in the third if you wish, you can go in the fourth. You can keep going even into the formless ones. The formless ones are very difficult to describe, but the fifth one is said to be the uh, experience of boundless space. Whereas inside the first meditative absorption, the experience is still being centered, like consciousness has a center, you still feel like it's, it's suspended somewhere. At this level, the, the center disappears. You just feel like 
all of space, they say. I cannot speak from experience, I'm just extrapolating from what I've read. But the experience from what I, what I assume it to be is that, that of not having any, any center point of consciousness, just pure space itself becomes the experience. The next one is just a boundless consciousness beyond space itself. Even the experience of space is said to fade away. And one is just aware of consciousness without any object. It's a purely subjective experience where the remembrance temporarily that any object in the entire creation exists has been suspended. There's just simply no knowledge of the world. The world, the universe, it's completely faded out of your experience. Even the memory of the world is completely gone at this stage. When one comes back from this experience, it's quite shocking that there actually is a world. It's shocking that there is a body that consciousness is associated with. The next stages are, are, are difficult. The next stage is said to be a stage of complete emptiness or voidness. Even the concept or the experience of consciousness is said to be not there. This is emptiness or voidness. They often talk about this a lot in Buddhism. And in the last stage, it's so complicated to explain to words, but they say there's neither perception nor non-perception. Meaning that the sense of I-ness is completely effaced. There's not even a subject to be aware of an experience of being. It, it is a great paradox. It is unknowable through the intellect. These are the meditative absorptions. Back and behind of all of these, it's important to understand that these are all temporal states. They come and they go. They're not the object, even though they can be profoundly transformative, be profoundly blissful, profoundly um, um, full of insight and wisdom, they themselves are not the ultimate destination. Once a yogi, if they choose to follow the path of Raja Yoga and never move towards jnana and the development of wisdom and through the non-dual techniques, they will need to go through these eight meditative absorptions. At the end of the eighth one is what we call samadhi, or the experience of nirvana. And they will enter into nirvana and they will have the complete, full realization of the ultimate nature of reality, and that is the final and permanent experience. It's an experience that isn't of something that is just a transitory uh, state of consciousness. The dhyana experiences are very wonderful. Uh, we definitely want to experience those, but they are not permanent. They, they come and go. Now, only nirvana or, or samadhi is, is that which is permanent. For somebody that doesn't want to take the entire spiritual journey through the Samkhya model or through the gradual model or through this Raja Yoga model where all there is is this intense meditation that propels you into the dhyana states. All we need to do is get to the level of dharana, level where we can focus our mind for about 30 seconds and then from there, if we choose, we can transition to that wisdom path and begin to practice self-inquiry and begin to reflect on Brahman and be able to, to approach the path in a slightly different way. If you are very much enjoy meditation, then it's highly recommended you work towards developing dharana 
to the level of Priti, to the level of Supta, to the level of Akabrata, and even if you if you're so blessed, enter into the meditative absorption the first one and then from there your your wisdom will let you know which path is really the most appropriate for you. Okay, so we covered a lot of ground today. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for listening to this episode, and we invite you to visit www.blooming-lotus-yoga.com backslash drops of nectar to learn more through Ramananda's books, articles, online courses, or by attending retreats. May you be happy, peaceful, and free.